If you're like me, you have a heart for missions and may have already done some missions work yourself. But you also see some huge issues in the way missions are being done. Like why are we still sending out monthly newsletters in a digital age when technology allows for instant updates in the palm of your hand? Or why are we convinced that we need to raise two years support before going when all 12 disciples dropped what they were doing and walked away? Or why are we allowing denominations to decide who can and cannot go do what God is calling them to do just because of things they've done in their past? And at what point did we brand following Christ to be a life of scarcity and sacrifice when it's truly a life of abundance and privilege? These are some of the blaring questions in the missions world today. And Watch Missions Live is here to reshape the way you see missions. It's time for missionaries to rise up, create a shift in perspective, a change, a revolution in the way things are done and give you the real story. One of abundance, fulfillment, and privilege. My name is Aaron Jennings, and welcome to Watch Missions Live. Hey everybody, welcome to Watch Missions Live. This is Aaron Jennings, and today we've got Landon Galloway, and we're going to be talking about ministry that he's very active with, um, Christ for India. Why don't you introduce yourself, Landon, tell us just a little bit about yourself. All right. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for having me. I'm honored to be with you today. Uh, as you said, my name is Landon Galloway. I wear a couple of different hats in ministry. I am the director of Destiny Leadership Institute, a two-year online training program where students can um, get biblical and practical ministry training online while serving in their local church. So that's a, a ministry I'm very excited about. I've been leading now for eight years. I'm also on staff at Grace Church in Houston, Texas, working with my senior pastors, Pastor Scott Jones and Pastor Brett Jones, uh, two brothers that uh, pastor together. Um, we have, uh, we're a multi-site church, so I work with our internship program, Grace Leadership Institute, as well as I'm a campus pastor and I pastor our, our Tumball location here on the northwest side of the city. So that's basically who I am. I'm married, I have two little girls, four and three. Uh, we're not really good at family planning, but there they are. So uh, do that and uh, just passionate about about ministry and about life and about doing uh, doing what God's called me to do. Awesome, awesome. Like most people in ministry wearing tons of hats and keeping super busy. Ministry, for those of you who don't know, it's a 27, it's a 24-7 job. <laughs> 27 for however many hours there are. They're, they're all they're Exactly. All, all the hours, all the days. Right. Well, we're actually pretty close. I got two girls as well, three and five. Okay. And um, they were kind of, they were mostly planned. We just said, hey, God, whenever you think we're ready, and they showed up. Right. No, not at the same time. <laughs> so, sounds like you're involved in a bunch of different things, which we kind of talked about, but let's specifically, I know your heart is um, really deep in one, the Christ for India. Um, that you spend a lot of time with, you help and do a lot with. So why don't you tell us a little bit about, about that one? Let's, let's focus on that one for this episode. Sure, yeah. So I do definitely have a heart for India. My wife is Indian. Uh, she's from Trinidad, the island of the Caribbean. But um, the British controlled Trinidad, and they brought over workers for the sugar plantations from India. So Trinidad has a, great, a big Indian population. So obviously uh, I uh, have a heart for India. And then I met... Jameson Titus a couple years ago. Uh, Jameson is the director of Christ for India, and I, he brought me over on a trip that was fascinating. And then after I got back from that trip, asked me to join their board, and so I've been helping give some uh, leadership and oversight to their to the organization, and then planning another trip to take a small team back next February. 
um, which uh, is exciting, but also the political climate in India has shifted a good bit. So it's a little more of a uh, uh, tenuous situation than it was the first time that I went as far as will our people be able to get visas and, and so on and so forth. But I, I love I love the ministry and love to share some about that trip with you. Yeah. So what all do they do? Because I know you were telling me about it. There's kind of four things that they focus on, and those right. are even pretty broad. But break down the, the Christ for India, what they're doing there full time, because they're there all the time, right? Right. So actually two brothers uh, operate it. Uh, Jameson is the U.S. delegate who's really responsible for traveling, raising funds, raising awareness, handling the business side. Uh, and he does that from his U.S. office, which is in Dallas. And then Johnson, the other brother, is uh, full-time in Visakhapatnam, India. Um, so that's the only time I'll say it because it's, you know, if I, I said it fairly well that time. And I'm afraid if I do it again, I would, I would butcher it. So, it's different uh, every time. It's different every time. <laughs> alphabet soup is all the right. way. Um, but so Johnson's there full-time. Their father started the ministry uh, and did, just did a fascinating job of visionary um, I think someone that you could relate to just moved to India with absolutely nothing and has built an entire, you know, an incredible ministry. And their focus, they do focus on four things. The first thing that they focus on um, is training nationals. So they do believe that the church is the hope of the world and that, that you know, that the church improves the, uh, improves the community. And so if you want to build a community, you need to build a church first. And so they uh, have a, a seminary where they uh, will train and equip leaders there. And it's how I got involved is I have an academic background. I've got uh, two master's degrees and, uh, and I'm working on my PhD. So I'm in the dissertation phase of that, which uh, is uh, insane. And I don't know yeah. why sometimes, but I am. And so I got involved by going in and teaching intensive courses in their seminary. Uh, and that's probably one of the most memorable moments of the trip when I was in their seminary. Uh, we were teaching, I was teaching eight to five, Monday through Friday, a, a whole master's level course on Jesus, uh, on the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The whole master's level course on Matthew, Mark, and Luke in a week, eight to five. <laughs> and there's a chapel in between, and I would speak at the chapel. So I'd you know, like lecture from like eight to noon and then preach a chapel service. And then there were services in the evening in village churches. And I literally, after my stay there, I said everything that I know about anything, like just because there were so many <laughs> opportunities. Um, and like, I think by the end, I'm just making stuff up. Like I, I went through all the Bible that I know. Now I'm just talking about, you know, all, all kinds of things that may or may not even, even have been true. Um, <laughs> and uh, so we wrap up the last day It's actually eight to five Thursday, then eight to lunch on Friday was the way it was scheduled. And so Friday, they come to me and some of the students say, hey, we have great news. I said, what that? They said, we actually uh, have talked to the dean and we can go all day tomorrow too. Instead of, <laughs> and so, you know, the concrete building, you know, in, in India, it feels like an oven, you know, you're baking oh, yeah. and teaching. But what stood out about that to me is like, like I've, I've been to seminary myself and uh, I remember a lot of times just doing the bare minimum, you know, to get yeah. the grade. So, skipping class, um, doing the whole thing. Um, God forgive me now, but uh, <laughs> I was so much younger and less spiritually mature. I would never do this now. I don't recommend it. But, right, right, right. 
where like, you know, you'd scan your ID for chapel, then just go off the other door. <laughs> um, but so to me, I remember, I remember that feeling of like how hungry they were for what I, what I took for granted because right. um, I, I feel like we, with such an abundance of resources and that's not just financial, but also access to information, access to training, uh, access to instructors. Like we have that. I just always took this for granted. And for them, this was their one shot for, you know, to get information from, from an American instructor, which they revered so highly that yeah. they were willing, like, cause if you'd have been me, if it had been me and my professor said, you're going to class eight to five and then eight to 12 and you get out the next day at 12. And one of my classmates would have had the audacity to say, why don't we go all day Friday too? Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would have throat punched someone, I'm afraid. Yep. <laughs> so, Understand. <laughs> so that's the seminary side of things. So they offer master's degrees. They offer a doctoral degree. Uh, full, fully accredited seminary. So that's the first thing they do is train nationals. The second thing they do is they plant churches, which works hand-in-hand hand with the seminary. So they're trained in the seminary. And then they're sent out all over India to plant churches. And this uh, church planting, uh, they're given enough money for rice and rent. So that, that amount is prorated based on which part of the country they go to. If they're in, a, in the middle of a major urban area, the cost of living is obviously a little bit higher. So the rice and rent will, will go. Yeah. Will go. So they're, they're sent out to plant churches there and supported. And then twice a year, there are pastors' conferences uh, where they'll be uh, – well, we will pay for the transportation to come back into um, Visakhapatnam for the uh, for for some training and for the conferences there. So train nationals, plant churches. Um, they uh, the third focus is children. So to help the the poor children of the region. So they have a school, uh, they have a children's home, and they have a junior college. Which the junior college is essentially what we would call the last two years of high school, where they go in and, and they do that. And at the end of it, they test out to see if they're able to continue their education or not. Right. And then so that helps there. Uh, and through that, you really see generations transformed uh, where, you know, someone who's been in a lower ca- or someone of a lower caste system and they've, their whole family has been relegated to just menial uh, impoverished jobs uh, have a chance to go to school and to start, you know, to start an elementary school to work their way up, go to junior high, and if they feel called to ministry, go right to seminary. If they don't feel called to ministry, test high enough to go to college and get a job that would have never been available to someone in their caste system without the right. Christ for India. Right. So, and you just you just right. mentioned that, and like I know what you're talking about, but a lot of people don't. So the caste system in India. Basically, they believe that wherever you're born is where you're born. If you're born rich, you're supposed to be there. If you're born poor, that's it. There's nothing else for you, right? Right. So you're saying with this, with your ministry, with the Christ for India, they're allowing them to kind of ascend past the caste system that is holding them down. Is that right? Absolutely. So what would happen, just say that if your caste system would say that you're relegated to a life of being a cook, you know, that's how you're born. Right. No other options, period mom was a cook, your grandmother was a cook, your great-grandmother was a cook. Like that's just, that's just who you are in life. Uh, mm-hmm. So the Western sense or the American sense of, of upward mobility is not, not as common in India yeah. and in many parts of the world. It's like you just, you, you are what you are. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but now imagine a situation where the school comes and hires your mom to be a cook at the school. And as part of that, you get to go to the school. 
And now uh, we actually saw it. There was a young lady serving us at one of the mills whose mom had been a cook or grandmother had been a cook. That's just what she was in life. Right. But she had just finished junior college and uh, was accepted into an engineering problem, uh, in, an engineering program at a university. So the whole trajectory, not only of her life, yeah. but of the life of her children and grandchildren, she broke this generational cycle where you're not allowed to be anything else. And she now has been empowered to be, to be something else. Um, yeah, that'd be huge in India. Because I mean, I don't, like I said, I don't, I don't nearly as much as you do about it. Of course, you've been there. I've never even been to India, but I know people from India and we know a little bit about it. But yeah, man, to think that like you have no options, period. All you get is what you were born into. There is no choice. There is no future past this. But then to have, you know, something like you're doing, open that up. That's huge because like you said, that's children and children and grandchildren and everything else. That's generational, you know, family tree shift in right. a country where it otherwise would do nothing. Like right. that's pretty big just in that one little aspect. <laughs> Certainly. And, and two, it, what it allows, uh, because this is a more rural area. So most of these rural, rural village kids uh, would really have no opportunity to go to school. Uh, and now they can go to school. And here's the thing. Many of them are, are, are Hindu. And I mean, India is primarily Hindu nation, mm -hmm. uh, although there are significant representation of Muslims and Christians, but because the government is Hindu, um, the actual statistics are difficult to know, right. you know, because it's not to your advantage to claim to be a Christian or a Muslim on any government census, because it would affect the level of benefits you might have access to. But still, um, primarily Hindu children now come to school and their, and their parents allow them to go to chapels and to learn about the Bible and to learn about Jesus just because if, you, if your option is to let them go to a Christian school or they don't go to school at all. Right. You know, what are you, so there's yeah. like, talk about a missions opportunity. Yeah, uh, very difficult, very difficult to go to a, uh, to a Hindu household and to convert a Hindu adult to Christianity. Um, there's a big conversation in India and among Hinduism, whether it's even possible to convert because they would say, once again, if you're born a Hindu, you die a Hindu. And so you can right. claim to follow Jesus, uh, but um, you can't change who you fundamentally are. And so right. obviously you and I know that in Christ, all, all the old things are passed away and everything becomes new and that there is a, a possibility to convert and to become something completely different than you are. But that's a conversation even among Indian Christians that are, it's harder to grapple with that idea of how yeah. do you convert, you know, to yeah. something else. But your success rate or your, your ability to show the way of Jesus to a, a Hindu adult, it's, it's a difficult, not that it can't be done. Um, right. My father-in-law, whom I actually never met, my wife's dad, uh, was, my wife comes from a Hindu home. And so... Uh, the whole family converted to Christianity whenever she was young and uh, except her dad and her dad was like, look, I, you know, he would say pretty, pretty vehemently. There's no way that I, as a, as a Hindu, it's like, it's like changing my brown skin. I'm not going to ever change my brown skin. I'm never going to change my religion. You can't make me, you can't make me white and you can't make me a Hindu. <laughs> Those are two things that, that, are, that you can't make me a Christian. Like I just am who I am. Right. Fortunately, about a year before he died, um, unexpectedly in a car accident, his heart softened and the Lord worked in his life and he became a Christian. Hmm. But we have personal experience on how 
difficult that is for a Hindu adult to change their mind about their religion. But these children, whenever you have a chance to to bring them in as four-year-olds, five-year-olds and teach them the Bible and teach them that Jesus loves them and cares for them and contrast the opportunities that Christianity offers, which says, we're all equal under Christ and there, you know, there is no, neither slave nor free, Jew, not, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, high caste nor low caste, if we want to extrapolate you know, even further. But Christ is all and is in all. That message of hope to a child mm-hmm. really will transform their future and, and can transform their destiny. Yeah. And so we've seen a lot of success. The ministry has seen a lot of success there in, in acknowledging the difficulty of changing an adult's mind so let's go let's go and and reach the children right 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 so we've got the you you're the seminary and you've got the schools and then what else yeah the seminaries the planning of the churches and the the schools and the feeding program and the feeding Uh, program yeah with the school um those kids receive a meal uh food um a lot of people that would otherwise probably be destitute um, work at the school as, yeah, you know, yeah. and so lots of people get fed every day. Um, yeah. <laughs> and humanitarian is the last, the last of the four things. And that, those are uh, water wells. Um, those are, that's, that is the feeding programs, uh, medical clinics, you know, just reaching out to what is a very poor and somewhat isolated area of India. Um, and where this really plays a role is, uh, as I alluded to earlier, India is uh, is very a very persecuted nation. Now it's actually passed Iran on the list of most persecuted nations in the world, which that's not you know the higher you get that list, it's not it's not good, you know. So like, oh yeah. Um, so uh, there's a a pretty radical Hindu government in charge who um, they've um, they've done some some pretty damaging things. Uh, they one you know one thing they've done that's really made ministry in India difficult is that you have to get permission from the government to receive um, outside funds. So if you're a ministry receiving funds from you, you, you know the U.S. or Europe, you have to have permission from the government in order to receive those funds. Yeah. And the government isn't very happy about organizations that they think are trying to convert people from Hinduism to Christianity. They think that as a, a threat to the national identity and national security. So what will happen then is, um, is the government will try to freeze those, those assets particularly. So many ministries, big ministries, have been frozen out of India recently. Yeah. The other part, that's kind of the government-sanctioned persecution, is, is the freezing of assets or the, you know, the disallowing of, of receiving funds. The we, other- actually, we actually noticed that because we, had, we were sponsoring a kid through Compassion in India. Right. And we'd had him for a while, and we're writing letters to him and everything else. And then finally, Compassion was like, hey, we've been kicked out of India. And right. boom, you just can't talk to him anymore. It's like, like there's no goodbye letter or no nothing. It's just like, boom, he just doesn't hear from us anymore, and we can't get back to him. So like, we've, we've experienced that part. Yeah. Man, I'm glad you brought up Compassion because there, that was a scary moment for all sorts of missions organizations in India because Compassion – if compassion can get kicked out. <laughs> yeah, they're, yeah, they're a big one. <laughs> they're, they're big. And uh, maybe the benefit is of an organization like Christ for India, um, which, by the way, is not the word, is not the, um, is not the name that we would use. Okay, not the name on the side of the building there, right? <laughs> yeah. 
not the name of the side of the building and not the LLC or the right. in India whatsoever. That's uh, just the, what was known for on the American side. Uh, but um, so that is the sanctioned persecution. Uh, but then the non-sanctioned persecution is that the government being so radically Hindu uh, tends to turn a blind eye to any other sorts of violence or, or whatever people do. So Christians right now have very little protection. So in different parts of India, uh, it's worse than other parts where, you know, churches get burned, uh, you know, pastors get flogged, uh, killed, drowned, you name it. It's just, it's, it can be pretty rough, but where this ministry is located, they've not witnessed that sort of backlash from the community mostly because of the humanitarian efforts, because at the end of the day, no matter how, what, how, no matter how you feel ideologically, um, if this organization is helping to feed your children and providing medical care and providing water, uh, fresh water, yeah, then you're going to fight for them. <laughs> and so I think there's a couple of things that we can all learn there. And that is the, the focus on targeting children because Adults are often set not saying that those efforts are are not worthwhile, but it just it's just very difficult to convert or to or to bring the way of Jesus to an adult already set in his or her ways. Right. The children are much more pliable, and um, and I think statistics would, would would bear that. And then secondly, realizing that if you really do good and you add significant value to your community, whether that's water or if you want to extrapolate that to an American context of saying, you know, like as a church, am I adding value to my community? Because that, that reaches people and, and really helps people. Yeah. Help people where they're at and you build that relationship and that opens the doors to be able to tell them about Christ. Absolutely. That relationship. Nobody, nobody knows or cares about what you know until they know how much you care. Yeah. That whole thing. <laughs> so what is a, I always like to kind of end because we're kind of coming here. I know we're short on time today, so it's going to be about it for today talking about that. And we're actually going to have you back on other episodes because I know you have a lot of places to talk about. <clears throat> but for today, I always like to end with give me a God story or a God sentence where you experienced God on, say, this trip since we're talking about this one, where you've experienced God to where a story that we wouldn't hear about unless we happen to run into you. <laughs> Tell us something that we most people would never hear. Oh, that's good. I I love that. Um, here's what I think the moment that sticks out the most. Um, I was teaching, as I said, I was teaching a class on the Gospels, and uh, I've taught that in the U.S. I've taught it other places, and so part of my lecture that I normally will do there is is I will talk about the cultural. Uh, the cultural differences between the world of the new Testament and our, in our world today. And I'm usually teaching this in a Western context. Right. And I obviously knew that this was going to be different, that there's a different context. And so what I did is I simply took the whiteboard and, uh, and I would draw like, or I wrote out like a, a cultural norm of the first century new Testament world, how that cultural norm compared to a cultural norm in the American world. And then, uh, and then um, I would just leave it blank and let them explain to me which one Indian culture or their culture was to the biblical worldview or to like what we consider a Western American worldview. So 
take the idea of of a wedding, you know, typical wedding. Right. Bill, everyone's invited. You're getting really offended if you don't get invited to someone's wedding. Uh, American is like very practical and pragmatic. Like, what does the bride want? Does the bride want a big spend every dime wedding, or do you want to elope and get married by Elvis in Vegas, or do you right. want a vacation wedding? Like, not really a right way or a wrong way. It's just right. what. So India obviously is much closer to the the biblical worldview, mm-hmm. and then you just bring that on down. I guess the God moment for me was how I've spent years and a lot of money and a lot of time trying to think in a in a first century Middle Eastern mindset because I think we can't really understand the scriptures, right? Particularly the Gospels and and the writings of, of the you know of the entire New Testament, unless we can sort of rewire our thinking to mm-hmm. to a to to think that way. But there are many missions contexts, including India, where they have this natural like they read virgin birth and go, Oh my God, that's terrible. And I'll read virgin birth and I have to go, okay, now you have to remember that in the first century, it was very unheard of for a woman to not be, to, to get pregnant without being married. And she could have been stoned and she could have been ostracized by her community. And I've got to say all these things mm-hmm. where they go, they immediately get the scandal. Like just yeah. like the, that at a visceral level that, yep. that I have to teach you to get. Uh-huh. They're like, we get it. <laughs> right. Uh, running out of wine at a wedding. Like I have to, we have to go through like what that would have meant, the shame that that would have accompanied, how the parents would have been embarrassed, how the parents would have thought like, oh, we've given our, our daughter away to this man. He can't even afford to yeah. pay for the party. How's he going to take care of our wife now or our daughter now? And mm-hmm. all these things that we're so many layers and levels removed from, there's part of the world that just gets it intrinsically. And I guess here's my God moment. And I, I know it's an unusual, probably an, not the kind of stories you typically hear, you know, it's not the, it's not the poor child. It's not the, the, right. it's, not the <laughs> it's not, it's not the typical missions thing. But for me, it hit me like, you know, the books that are written, the textbooks that are written, the lectures that are given are normally always given by Westerners who by our cultural setting are several degrees removed from what would be a biblical worldview or mindset. Yeah. And so, like, they're begging me to come and teach them when I imagine that if we found a way to equip and empower them to do so, that they could teach me a lot of things about Scripture. Because a lot they, quicker. A lot quicker because they have this natural, they get it. Yeah. And, um, and it, it would lead me to, I guess, my God moment or, or something I'm really passionate about and I think the Lord has been teaching me lately is to realize how missions efforts are never are never meant to be one-sided you know that that we go there humbly that their their culture is beautiful uh, in many cases they they've got a predisposition towards the gospel and understanding the teachings and the way of jesus that that is hard for these individualistic um you know uh culture that we live in yeah. and so and the God moment there was to realize like how much they had to offer and not in a, uh, not in a, Oh, they just can teach us so much because they're poor and we're not like, but more to like just their whole mindset is, is really geared to understanding the gospel. Right. Well, cool. Yeah. That's always fun. It's always, 
there's so many times we hear people are like, it was more of what I learned from them or more what I felt. And that's something I always, that's why I encourage people. It doesn't matter if it's a a week trip or a two day trip around town. If you get out and serve other people and just seek God on what he wants you to do and just go do it. Don't worry about all the details and everything else. You're going to learn and get just as much out of it as the other people. And so it's always fun to see all the different directions that that works. I love it. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, that's, we will wrap that up for today. And you guys will definitely want to come back and hear Landon's other episodes because he's been all over. You could tell by the hats that he wears, he does all sorts of stuff. So we're definitely going to have some more stories on different days. Keep in, um, keep listening and keeping in tune for those episodes. Landon, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, thank you for your time. Please remember to rate and subscribe. After being a full-time missionary, I got tired of people looking at me like it must be really hard to do what you do. And they'd say things like, I'd love to be able to do something like that, but insert excuse. When the real reason was because they saw what we were doing as a sacrifice. That to do missions work, they would have to give up everything that quite honestly was forcing them to do things they didn't like for people they couldn't stand so they could afford things that they didn't need. The truth is, as full-time missionaries, it was one of the few times in my life when I was truly fulfilled. It was the closest to God I'd ever been debt-free, not stressed, and living the life of an adventure I'd always wanted. If you too believe that it's time for a change, then head over to watchmissionslive.com and join the revolution.